0: Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodak. I'm here with Jim Oaks again. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good. Doing good. Good to be back.
0: Glad to have you back. Happy New Year. Thank and you.
1: You too. The,
0: when, as we're recording now, it's uh, January 5th. It's only a couple of weeks after I was here last time. Right. After we recorded, you reached to your shelf and said, here's a couple of the books. Because uh, I'd, I'd read not all, but some of A Crooked Path. Right. And so you gave me Freedom National, which I believe was the first or second that won the Lincoln Prize. Second. Second. And uh, I went through that in like a couple days and then went to the ruling race, which is a significantly older book. That was in 1982, if I remember that right. That was my
1: dissertation.
0: And if it's, and that book is, I'll say a few words about that one, but probably going to Freedom National first, but it was, it's about the, what slave owners in the South of the United States before the civil war were like. Going back to, I guess, some to pre-revolutionary war. And I gotta say, it read so, I mean, there's a lot of things that were not relevant to environment today. But when it got, when you started talking about religion and how they could, they struggled to reconcile a religion that said do unto others, the golden rule with torture and whipping. And, uh, and then it started, and then from that, from then on, there was a lot that overlapped with how people today struggle to reconcile they want to change they want to stop polluting and they can't i should say we want to stop polluting but we can't and we're racked with guilt and helplessness and hopelessness and the result is we don't want to talk about it and which some of the like and i was reading it on the train ride and i was i'm the only white guy on the train and it says the ruling race on the cover <laughs> And it has the N word because you quote a lot. And so I'm like, I hope no one gets the wrong idea. I don't know <laughs> what people are thinking here, but, uh, but you know, this is what I, I want. I think it's very important that people read stuff like this. And there's tons. Of, so let, me, let me see if I can get a quote from here. Um, David Benedict underwent a similar, similar transformation. Oh yeah. It's this guy who in 17, 1776, he went to Charleston with every prejudice I could have against slavery only to find his principles impractical. Now, quoting this guy from 1776, Providence has ca- cast my lot where slavery is introduced and practiced under the sanction of, lo- of the laws of this country. Servants I want, but hired ones I cannot obtain, and therefore I've purchased some. So he wants to have people working for him, but it's, all he can do is get slaves. And then he says, I cannot do as I would. I do as I can. I want to do differently, but what can I do? Right, and how many people today are saying, "I don't want to pollute, but what can I do?"
1: Convenience sin.
0: Yeah, and that here's the next quote: is, uh, um, in 1835, Agani Watson says, "I abominate slavery." He had written in 1835, but within 15 years, he says, "If we do commit a sin owning slaves, it is certainly one with which is attended with great conveniences." How many of us today comfort and convenience? It's so easy. What? And I think we would say to someone back then, I'm not sure how we would put it into words, but even though you feel like you would lose out, you personally, a slave owner, by freeing your slaves, I think you would agree. You would find that you would be glad that you did and you wish you had changed earlier. And we, we, we might add, and there's going to be a war where hundreds of thousands of, of young men die. If you don't, but even without that, I think, I think we would know that even the slave owners, maybe not uh, many of them would like their lives better if they, well, you have to change the whole system. So it's a little, it's complicated. Anyway, on to Freedom National. <laughs> if we can get to that one. Freedom National, I believe, have I summarized it effectively in the, do I summarize it by saying it's the story of how 13 slave colonies, before 1776, became 13 slave states in 1776. Then 1787, in that time, some had become free. And so they wrote a constitution with lots of, you know, people, the slave and, and, and free states had to come together in some way. And so there are compromises that even the slave, even the free state representatives felt, well, slavery's on the way out. So we'll allow this stuff uh but it's going to go away and then uh by dint of of maybe maybe the cotton gin mainly slavery got extremely powerful so that so now we have ha- the end is i think 36 states were free states through the 36- 13th amendment and that that journey of this incredible rise to power of slave owners and Then there's the Republican and pre-Republican Party, the Republican Party and Lincoln. What like they didn't say, let's pass the 13th Amendment that came in later and it took in one way. It's they had two plans of emancipation through military if that were to come up, but not not knowing that there'd be a civil war, although everyone saw civil war coming, it seems. that's, That's
1: that's in dispute. But I think more people were conscious of the possibility.
0: And then they had the other plan, which what they were acting on, was to put a cordon around the slave states, around on the ocean, this, the, the border states, and to strangle it or to, uh, to lead the states to want to change. Because right. the federal consensus was that the federal government can't change what's going on inside a state.
1: Exactly. It can't abolish slavery in a state, can't, quote, interfere with, that is, abolish slavery in a state.
0: And to me, so ultimately was the King's solution was what ended the 13th Amendment. Which could not possibly. This is what is super inspiring to me is that the solution that worked. I believe we're all happy with the Thirteenth Amendment. Maybe it could have been a little bit better, but like we're happy that 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 we that slavery is not legal in this country.
1: Yes, there are people who are saying that it didn't free the slaves, but yes, that's the general.
0: All right, so there is that clause of of.
1: Yeah, that's that's a, there's a there's a perverse misreading of that clause, but yes, super.
0: and I, it's a good thing. My is joke like, is that I'm sure that Jeff Bezos is like, "Let's like, how do we get to this limit and maybe go a little bit over? <laughs> and what inspires me is that there were generations of people who anyone, they, the things that they did, anyone around them would have said, why bother? What you do doesn't matter. And yet, all that stuff was necessary in this brief moment when the 13th Amendment could pass. And all that preparation was critically important. Yes. And much of it done, possibly with, no, with little hope that it would actually make a difference. And yet, what else could you do when there's one thing that you, you must move something?
1: Right. One step at a time without knowing what the next step is going to be until you see what the step you've just taken produces. Not even thinking in those terms, just this is what we need to do now. And see what happens when we do this and respond appropriately to see what we should do next. Yeah, yeah.
0: When I spoke to you last time, you said, I can't stop myself from researching this stuff. And it is, it's, I mean, this is an amazing point in history that didn't have to be. That's correct.
1: That's correct. That's why I study it. How did they get this done?
0: Yeah, and what motivated that? How did, you talk about the, um, the, the Freedom National, there's a change in perspective And I think a lot of us look back at like slavery was in the Constitution. Therefore, slavery was normal and freedom was not normal. But well before the Constitution, before the uh, Civil War, people were saying, no, 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 let's let's look at this. It's can you.
1: Yeah. Freedom was
0: national. Freedom was a normal state of being.
1: Well, no, there there was a debate. I mean, one group of Americans comes to the conclusion that freedom should be the norm and should be made national. And as that becomes more and more influential in American public life, in American politics, the counter-argument becomes, uh, no, the Constitution absolutely protects slavery as an unquestioned constitutional right of property, and therefore it, it must be protected in the territories we must allow slaveholders to go into northern states and cities and countries and collect their runaway slaves. We have to do everything to protect slavery. So it's two very different visions. One looks to be making slavery national, and the other looks to be making freedom national. And that's, the, that's what the Civil War ends up being about. Right?
0: I, re- I never read—I never understood the Constitution as being read as freedom was national. Was that— it was, did people read it that way from immediately from 1787?
1: No, I don't think so. No. I, I don't think they, they did read it that way because I don't think they felt, to some extent, they didn't feel the need to read it that way. I don't think the people from the, the South Carolina and Georgia felt that the Constitution was designed to make freedom national. They wouldn't have signed on to the Constitution otherwise. I think people read the Constitution differently. And uh, the the more pro-slavery people read it as a pro-slavery document and the more anti-slavery people saw all sorts of, they recognized the compromises that were made, but they assumed that the slave economy was dying and would eventually disappear the same way, uh, the way it had been disappearing in the North, one state at a time, you know, and, you know, eventually all the estates would do what the founders supposedly intended, which is to abolish slavery everywhere. So I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think the idea of freedom national comes into play until after, really, after at the earliest after the Missouri Crisis in eighteen twenty, when you start seeing the first indications of a kind of national program, what I call the anti-slavery project, to you know. Have the federal government undertake a series of policies that were designed to put slavery on a course of ultimate extinction, as Lincoln said. Uh, it really doesn't show up. The first time you see it as a as a real political project is 1840 with the Liberty Party, like that. But it's uh, so Freedom National as a project. Doesn't get articulated that way, really, until the forties and fifties, the eighteen forties and fifties. So, I don't think, I don't think, the Constitution did that.
0: So, they had to look at it and figure out how can we interpret this in ways that work for us. That,
1: well, I'm not sure it was as as utilitarian as as that. I mean, there are ways in which people did say they made arguments. Of, To the effect that, that, you know, the document is designed primarily to protect freedom. There are exceptions in the Constitution that were necessary in order to create a unified nation. Uh, But if freedom is the rule and slavery is the exception in the Constitution, then the Constitution should be consistently interpreted when issues arise in favor of freedom.
0: Right. So there's one document, where everyone agrees on the words, and yet some people read it, I mean, there's this latent for a long time division of how people are reading this thing. and Right. The,
1: and those divisions get articulated with increasing sophistication and clarity and polarity on both sides. They're responding to each other right? The, the northern anti-slavery folks are beginning to say, uh, slavery. the, the justification, say, for slavery's abolition in Washington, D.C. is that freedom should be the presumption anywhere the Constitution is sovereign. The, the slaveholders respond by saying, but the Constitution recognizes slaves as property, and you cannot, the Congress can do Yes, the Congress has the power under the Constitution to make, quote, all needful rules and regulations regarding Washington, D.C., but that doesn't mean it can deprive anyone in Washington, D.C. of their constitutionally protected rights of property. So you get a debate over whether the Constitution actually does say there is a constitutionally protected right of property in slaves. And that's what the pro-slavery folks are saying the Constitution says, and that's this is one place where I just, you know, as Lincoln would say, put the foot down. No, it doesn't. The Constitution does not say that slaves are property. They went out of their way not to say slaves are property. You can interpret what their, their refusal to refer to slaves as property, refer to them everywhere and always as persons, as an evasion, you know, a, a, a euphemism, things like that. But then you have to deal with the evidence that we do have, it's not a pile, but the evidence that we have that Sean Wilentz has highlighted in his book, uh, that they consciously refused to recognize property rights in human beings. And yet the slaveholders come to the exact opposite conclusion, and that that slavery is a constitutionally protected right of property. The Dred Scott decision in 1857, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court says the Constitution expressly recognizes the right of property in slaves. Well, show me where. I mean, uh, be a textualist. Be an old-fashioned conservative originalist and show me in the text where it says slaves are property. It doesn't. And that's, you know, so you get fights. The Constitution, uh, you know, and you're a historian. A historian is in some ways instinctively an originalist. You know, find out what it meant at the time. Mm -hmm. Something like that. But in this particular case, uh, and probably in a lot of cases, you know, the <laughs> the original meaning is contested, mm-hmm. right? And so, what it uh, it's contested right from the start. It's interpreted differently by different people. It allows there are certain ways in which it allows anti-slavery to flourish, and certain ways that it, uh, it protects slavery you know, or recognizes slavery. So,
0: going back to if the roots are in the 1820s and maybe started picking up in the 1840s i'm trying to think i'm trying to put myself in the minds and the hearts and minds of people uh you know the the final outcome is very far off and maybe never right and yet they're still working what's motivating them what's the are they i mean there's a lot of them uh but how are they working with such little expectation of success maybe within their lifetimes have you gotten into their heads like that and their, their hearts like that?
1: Well, they're, you know, who are they? There's I a mean, lot of them, yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, there are, there are uh, a small group of people who are absolutely motivated by this desire to rid the country of the stain of slavery. And they, they, they're small in number and they push. And in the process... Of, and they're people we don't really know. They're not William Lloyd Garrison. They're Charles Minor, you know, who was in Congress in the 1820s and kept introducing bills for the abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C., and the abolition of the slave trade in Washington, D.C., and stuff like that. And we don't know much about him. You know? There are abolitionists like Benjamin Lundy, who are much less well-known, who in some ways are far more influential than and Garrison was, uh, who, who said, you know, the Constitution doesn't allow us to abolish slavery in a state, but it does allow us to ban slavery from the western territories. It does allow us to, we are, as states, allowed to protect the due process rights of accused fugitives in ways that upset and the slaveholders because it thwarts slave catching and stuff like that. It allows us to. Regulate the domestic slave trade, maybe ban it, maybe the the sale of slaves over across state lines. Certainly, you know, it allows us to do all these things, right? And he's the first person to articulate that vision that's going to become Freedom National. It isn't when he says it, but he, you know, starting with this question of slavery in Washington D.C., which grates on a lot of people, right, and a lot of Northerners, because. That's what we're responsible for. We can't help that the slave states have slavery. But the national government is responsible for allowing slavery in Washington, D.C., and we really shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't have slave traders inside of the Capitol and things like that. It's an embarrassment. And so that's the entering wedge in some ways of the issue. That's what Charles Minor is pushing for in the 1820s, late 1820s. And if you get a petition campaign, he, in 1828, he did this campaign to send petitions to Congress and ask for this. And it really picks up after 1833 with the, uh, 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 well, there's a whole, it's part of a larger thing that's going on in the late 1820s. There's an evangelical Protestant revival across America and large numbers of women who are particularly influential in these churches, uh, who can't, engage in formal politics in the sense they're not allowed to vote, um, can petition. So you get petition campaigns originating from this evangelical Protestant impulse in the late 1820s calling for Sabbatarianism, close the post offices on Sunday and things like that, Um, um, calling for the abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C., calling for a, a few things like that. So there's this it starts there. In some ways, that's a kernel, right? And when the anti-slavery, the American Anti-Slavery Society is established in 1833, this new, more militant approach. Uh, uh, the second thing, the first thing they do is say, "Let's bombard the South with anti-slavery petitions and see if we can persuade these slaveholders to abolish slavery on their." Own. But the Jackson administration just squashes it. They literally start burning the pamphlets in the Charleston post office and won't won't deliver them. So the next thing they do is...
0: So I don't know, that's got to be a violation of of all sorts of things. Well, but, this is
1: important. It is a violation. It is perceived as a violation, but the biggest violation comes with the attempt to gag the petitions because that's the sacred right of petition, especially because that's something, that's the political, that's the political wedge that women have. They can't vote, but they can petition. They so,
0: petition Congress. They,
1: and they start a much more widespread campaign, a much more organized campaign to bombard Congress with petitions calling for the abolition of slavery and the slave trade in Washington, D.C., that prom- prompts the Southerners in Congress to demand that those petitions be gagged. They're not allowed, right? You just stop them at the door and don't either don't receive them or you just toss them out as soon as they're, right? You don't. You don't receive them and then ignore them. You don't send them to the committee or something like that. You just gag them. You're not even allowed to admit them. And that, that really does, you know, great on increasing numbers of norms. Like, we don't have the right of petition? I mean, everybody has the right of petition. It's petition comes from prayer. Everyone's allowed to pray. The lowliest people can pray. Even slaves can pray, you know, um, to God and petition for redress of grievances. And so... Instead of silencing the discussion, which is the gag rule is supposed to do, it does the opposite. The the anti-slavery people are watching this and they're saying, we have struck a nerve. So let's, instead of stopping the petitions, let's send 10 times more petitions, right? Which they do. And in the House of Representatives, it keeps coming up every year. They have to renew the gag every year and they can't stop the debate. John Quincy Adams, the greatest ex-president in American history, just repeatedly needles the slaveholders in Congress to, you know, they, they gets some. And, you know, then you start getting petitions. They're not allowed to send petitions relating to abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C. But can they petition to repeal the gag rule, Right, <laughs> right? And at the same time that they're debating the gag rule, Texas declares independence from Mexico, and the Jackson administration starts saying, let's annex Texas. And then you start getting petitioned, then every anti-slavery person knows that this is just going to, re- this is a slaveholder swindle, they're going to admit a new slave state to the union, and we got to stop this. So you start getting petitions for the against the annexation of Texas. Now, that's not covered by the gag rule, right? So, but everybody knows it's about slavery, and everybody knows petitions and the gag rule are about slavery, right? And, and then they just, the, the dam opens and they start flooding Congress with millions of signatures, you know, tens of thousands of petitions. And they, they realize that A, the slaveholders are depriving us free Northerners of our sacred rights of petition. They're suppressing our free speech by not delivering the pamphlets through the mails. And, you know, they're trying to, swindle us into having more slave states in the Union by this bogus annexation of Texas. And they're telling us we can't even consider the abolition of slavery in Washington, D.C., despite the fact that the Constitution gives us the power to do so. So they start saying, you know, this isn't just about slavery in Washington, D.C. This is about slavery. So let's send them petitions calling for the abolition of slavery, the ban on slavery in the Western Territories. Let's send petitions saying no new slave state should be admitted to the Union. Let's send petitions saying that uh, the domestic slave trade should be suppressed, right, and regulated out of existence. And so all of a sudden, in the late 1830s, the anti-slavery people know that they have struck a nerve. They are forcing the issue back into politics in a way that had been suppressed from politics. And boom, the whole thing explodes. The whole thing explodes. And by 1840, you've got an anti-slavery political party pushing for this. The, the gag rule is... F- and more and more Northerners are upset by this attempt to suppress these various petitions. And every year it comes up for a vote in the House of Representatives. More and more Northerners vote against it. The slave states are not growing as fast as the free states are. The free states' economies are more dynamic. So after 1840, there are more free state representatives, right? And, and in the early eighteen forties they finally repealed the gag rule and boom, the flood is the, the floodgates are opened and you start getting calls for the, you know, no no slavery in any of the territory we take from Mexico. You know, uh, the northern states are not going to participate in any way in the rendition of fugitive slaves. We want to you know, so you start getting a full blooded anti slavery politics. And nobody sat back in 1825 and planned this out, you know. But given their convictions, they sense, they know that if they can persuade Northerners, the increasing numbers of Northerners, that this is something they really need to be concerned about, that this is not just about the treatment of black people in the South that we have no control over. We might not like it, but we have no control. It's something that affects the kind of country we're going to be, you know, are we going to let the slaveholders run roughshod over us? You know, are they going to have control of the federal government? Are they going to continue to have, you know, are all the presidents going to be slaveholders? Are are all the Supreme Court justices going to be pro-slavery? Is the is the Senate going to be dominated by pro-slavery senators because we're not allowed to admit a new free state unless we admit a new slave state at the same time? Like that, so that they're, they're coming to see what the anti-slavery people wanted them to see, that this is, this is something that does concern them. The slaveholders would, you know, kept saying, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. And yet everything they do to make it none of the northerners' business makes it the northerners' business, right?
0: If you're going to allow, I mean, if you believe in freedom and you allow, and you want, and you believe a government should protect life, liberty, property, then if you allow a blatant, opposite of that, it can't stand. You can't contain something like that. Well, that
1: you certainly couldn't contain that because it went to fundamental questions about what kind of country the United States was going to be, but also fundamental questions about who was going to rule the country. Are we going to let the slaveholding class rule this country and shove their laws and policies down our throats? Or are we not? Are we going to have a society based on formerly free labor, which has benefits that we like? No?
0: I want to stay talking about slavery and abolition, but I do want to frame how I'm looking at all this. Is that to me, pollution hurts; it deprives people, others, of life, liberty, and property. It's... Yes. So, in the case of slavery, there was um, in 1787 there were compromises made. Because they saw that there was this conflict between the free states and the, and the and the slave states. Yes. What they did, what they could not possibly have foreseen, was the invention of plastic, the strip mining, and, yes, and that's correct. They couldn't have seen. So here's a place where it's absent. But to me, there's like, um, if there's pollution, what's the opposite of pollution? The clean, uh, clean national. Yes. It's a different situation where yes. they didn't foresee something. So there's no, there are no compromises made because they didn't, there was no sense that you could have PCBs in the Hudson. So they didn't, they didn't say, like, we'll allow pollution for 21 years.
1: On the contrary, they, they, they come to this. Some of the moral convictions they, they have at the, at the moment of the nation's founding would seem to be amenable to some kind of conservation efforts. You are the stewards of, of the earth and you, you know you, God gives this to you not to despoil but to...
0: So you see that there's like, there's like, you, like a clean national... You can national. see that.
1: You can see that. But mostly, mostly it seemed to me it went in the other direction. That is, the, the a justification right from the 17th century on for uh, dispossessing native peoples was that, you know, God gave us this land to improve, and if you fail to improve it, you've forfeited your right to it. We come here from Europe intending to improve the soil. You don't, and we Well they're wrecking uh, it all over the place. So yeah, right. Of- right. So so there is that element also That so there's in that sense there's in that sense there is a conflict. Right? And
0: so I don't want to get into it yet, because I do want to get you together with the past guest. Okay. Uh, Michael Hertz, who's the uh, the constitutional scholar, right, um, to talk about how to apply it. But I, I want to learn more about the slave situation. Okay, you were talking about the gag rule and petitions, and I feel like as big as that was, there's a, the phrase that was in my mind reading Freedom National was "kitchen sink." I felt like what 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 can we do? What? Is that possible? Let's do that too. Yes. Let's do that. Let's do that. and yes. So you're talking about the people acting, but then the politicians were also figuring things out, especially the Republicans.
1: What can we do? And, you know, and will this work? Right.
0: And it, let's try it. Yeah. Yes. let's But it's shot. in
1: the context of uh, of certain. Certain very profound changes in American life and society that are different in the north than they are in the south. I mean, in the south, the cotton economy is booming. It goes through cycles of boom and bust as commodity markets do um but it's it's growing dramatically and and there's a certain way in which there's a certain assumption among Americans now but also then that growth is in and of itself a sign of prosperity and success so the fact that the cotton economy is growing is proof to some that that uh, that slavery is a success an economic success um but it's not developing, and there are other others in the North who are saying, "We're not just growing; we also have public schools and roads and canals and railroads and markets that connect us to one another, and and we attract millions of immigrants, and they won't go to the South because we have opportunities in our society that you folks don't have in a slave society, and a slave society suppresses, and and the North." outpaces the development of the South, and Northerners come to see this and rely on this for an anti-slavery politics to succeed. That is, we're going to win. You know, we're, Eventually, we will be so overwhelming in the House of Representatives because slave economies are doomed, and we're going to shut it off, right? And it's not going to be able to expand. And, you know, it's just the inexorable tide of progress that we will win there is a lot of that right going on in the north and it's based on a kind of pro-developmental assumption about the 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 moral the social the economic the political superiority of a society based on free rather than slave labor and and that seems to be working that seems to be you know, shifting the balance of political power nationally in favor of the North, and that's what the slaveholders become very frightened by. You know, and it's one of in and, and you know, and and you can see the stages at which they become increasingly frightened. You know, in the eighteen forties, the issue of Washington D.C. sort of disappears, even though it it played a crucial role at a critical moment in the development of anti-slavery politics. By the eighteen forties, the two issues that are going to dominate American politics, the politics of slavery, are the territorial issue and the fugitive slave issue uh, for a variety of different reasons and and in different ways. They're going to provoke more and more intense controversy over over slavery. And in the meantime, you know, by then then the anti-slavery project is known. The people who are opposed to slavery in the territories tend to favor, you know, you know, due process rights for accused fugitives, some form of regulation of the domestic slave trade, suppression of the illegal Atlantic slave trade, doing all those things. So there's a kind of recognition of an emerging anti-slavery project, and you know that that comes to be known as making freedom national by the 1850s. Certainly,
0: there's something that your book didn't cover of the justification of enslaving one human being by another. That, I mean. I would, okay, they have different skin color and they're from Africa. We have a different skin color. We're from Europe. And I could see them saying, that's the difference. But on the other hand, I'd like, here's something, I know this wouldn't work, but I kept feeling like, say, like, uh, um, Dred Scott, why couldn't he say, why couldn't he say, once we're free, I you're my slave now. What would happen? Why should it be, if, if they're both human beings, why, how do we justify someone being a slave at all? Why can't Lincoln say to Douglas in the debates, all right, I'm enslaving you. You're my slave right now. And you, like, what, why can you say, why can you say, no, I'm not a slave and, and an African can't? It, it It seems to our ears today, like, why do you get to call someone a slave? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But how do we, What's the justification? That's, of, because,
1: that's because we live in a post-abolitionist moral universe in which we can't imagine how anyone can justify Couldn't they just us? say
0: that's a human being, and a human being, citizen or not? I mean, even if you say Dred Scott, and they, they weren't supposed to be citizens, they're still a human being. Like, we can't... Um, but, you know, uh, slavery...
1: Slavery has existed since time immemorial, and there was, you know, while it was understood... Nobody wanted to be a slave. Everybody thought you know, being a slave was a good thing. It was understood to be an acceptable way of organizing society. It was, you know, it was, that's the normal thing societies did with one another when they went to war. They they didn't just kill their opponents. They enslaved the ones who survived. That's the normal thing to do throughout human history all over the world, right? And you don't get an argument like the one you're talking about, how could you do this? How could you do this yeah. until, until really the earliest of the modern kinds of sounding arguments for this come in the 17th century, and then it gets picked up by dissenting Protestants like the Quakers. But even then, it's only among the Quakers, you know, and they get more and more aggressive about policing slavery among themselves. It's not until the American Revolution there is no such thing, really in the history of the world as abolition, right? Slavery is so bad, we need to abolish it until the American Revolution.
0: It occurred to me that it wasn't that bad until, I I think, here's something that's been in my head for a while. I think since reading, um, what's his name? Um, Capitalism and Slavery, uh, Eric.
1: er, Eric Williams.
0: Yeah, that he points out that slavery led to racism. Yes. That slavery before wasn't particularly racist. But for economic reasons, when, I mean, you have a large number of slaves, you have land, the the absentee landlords are running the show, and so they can't see the cruelty. So the cruelty grows a huge bounds, or the the magnitude of the slavery increases.
1: This is the point, you know, this very smart historian up at Columbia University made this point years ago, right? The slaveholders did not enslave people in order to create white supremacy. They enslaved people to grow tobacco Mm -hmm. and cotton. And they justified what they were doing. Eventually, when it became unacceptable to justify it on the grounds that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that no two men are created equal, that some men are born high and lighty and others to be low and despicable, and the appropriate thing to do is to accept the place you have in the social order into which you were born, That can accommodate slavery. But when that comes under questioning in the 17th and 18th centuries, and and the alternative is enshrined in the American Revolution, you need a different justification for enslaving a particular group of people, and you start to get a racialized justification for the enslavement of a particular group of people. Right? They're not enslaving them because they're black. They're enslaving them because they want laborers. We, we quoted that guy, right? Yeah. You know, I, I came down to the South, and I needed servants, and uh, you know, uh, uh, so I did it. So I bought slaves. I couldn't get servants, so I bought some slaves. Right? They, that's why you have slaves, you know, to grow cotton to grow rice, to grow sugar, to grow tobacco. You justify it in the context of a political revolution that has repudiated the notion of fundamental, of the, of organic hierarchy as the norm and replaced it with this ideal of fundamental human equality. And how are you going to justify this? Well, you, Racism is one of the major justifications for it. For ju- And it doesn't... It's not a justification for slavery. It's a justification for why this particular group of people is enslaved. Right? Right. The justification of slavery is it's property, and you can't take property away from us. You know, slaves are property. Yeah. And the idea that this, like, there's a kind of anachronistic tendency to say, you know, persons aren't property, you know, that is abolitionist morality. But there's no logical, theoretical reason why a person can't be property. Right? There's all sorts of different kinds of property. You know, some property is alive. I own my dog. Some property is dead. You know, some property is you know I own my book. You know, some property is inanimate. Some property is abstract. A dollar bill is a, an abstraction, right? Right. But some of it is concrete. You know, it's a concrete. Patio in my backyard. It's concrete and I own it, right? There are all sorts of kinds of property, and you can make human beings property and recognize that they're human beings who are my property. Right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a problem for the slaveholders to recognize that the slaves were human beings and they were their property. Right? It's only abolitionists who start saying you can't a person can't be property. And we think that. Right? How can you make a person into property,
0: yeah, it's like it's like mind-bending now to try to. View yeah, it we that can't
1: way. imagine that because we live in a, a moral universe that has been transformed by abolitionism, right? And we we find it completely unacceptable.
0: Now, a lot of stuff in the Civil War, they tried to look in, in the the laws of nations for what's allowed or not allowed. For example, in um, well, lots of things. Well, the laws of nations must have allowed to capture. I mean, now we have the G- Geneva Convention, but could you, you took prisoners of war and you can enslave them? I mean, that happened for thousands of years. Could Lincoln have said, when we capture your soldiers, we're going to enslave them? Like, you, you think slavery is so good? All right. The laws of nations, you, you, when you capture someone? Yes,
1: well, at that point, uh, uh, in the 19th century, especially by the 19th century, racial ideology is so You yeah, could imagine abroad. a white person
0: being enslaved, right?
1: Yes, that the idea of enslaving white, white people, enslaving white people is just so, it's unthinkable,
0: <laughs> to, and yet, to most people. yet historical. Yeah, comment. historically, of course, I mean, they always were. No, listen. The uh, like-
1: Af- Africans enslaved Africans, right? They, 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 Americans, Europeans didn't go to the coast of Africa and enslave Africans. They went to the coast of Africa and purchased Africans from Af- Af- Africans, right? Because Af- Africans, Europeans enslaved Europeans. You yeah, know, the word "slave" comes from but, "slav,"
0: which is European. Yeah, yeah. you
1: know that. I mean, theoretically, you're not supposed to enslave your own kind, right? Muslims aren't supposed to enslave Muslims, Christians don't enslave Christians and things like that. But that's a kind of vague moral injunction that's one of those things that's, you know, what do they say? It's, it's honored in the breach more than uh, the actual reality of things. But, you know, yes, there is, uh, slavery isn't racial until the modern world, it isn't racialized, right, until the modern world. When you invent this concept of race, you pretend there are things in the world as different races, and then you say these people are of a different race, and therefore, and then they are as a race particularly suited to enslavement.
0: I've read a lot of accounts of uh, that when Europeans first came to North America, they tried to enslave Indians, but the Indians were they weren't hierarchical, and so it didn't work very well. So they brought.
1: Oh, it's not that the Indians weren't hierarchical. <laughs> they they, they lived, would walk away. They lived, live. Yeah, they lived in the woods right beyond the village and they could get away. It was hard. You couldn't enslave them for that reason. But Indians enslaved Indians. Yeah. There was slavery among the Indians. They had those kind of notions of hierarchy too. You
0: just couldn't keep them. They, they,
1: yeah, it was impractical. Plus they died. You know, they died of European diseases uh, yeah. and things like that.
0: So then the Europeans brought Europeans over. I would guess, I mean, the British brought British and and, and But not as slaves, and, and they
1: brought them over as indentured indentures. servants. Mm-hmm. And theoretically, you have to volunteer for that, right? You have to be so desperate, you know, that you volunteer for that. Um,
0: and there's a, an end of the term. Yes, in it's principle. five,
1: six, seven years, and 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 it's over. So that's that's the problem with indentured servitude. It puts itself out of business. You have to keep on importing more and more. The thing that's different about African slavery in North America, not everywhere, but in North America, is that, you know, the growing season is short. It's not tropical. They don't die the way they do in the sugar colonies of the Caribbean and stuff like that. So you don't have to keep importing them. They start reproducing on their own. You know, the the slave plantations produce enough food to keep them, you know, adequately nourished and stuff like that. So you get a self-reproducing slave population in the United States that, isn't the case in other places, so they don't have to keep importing slaves and things like that. And because it's perpetual, the, the double perpetuity of slavery—right, you are a slave for life, and your children inherit the perpetual condition. So it's so that, that combined with the self-reproducing nature of the American slave population means that the population of slaves can increase dramatically without relying heavily on the Atlantic slave trade. So the the u s gets four and a half percent of all the slaves on the Atlantic slave trade you know about the ten or twelve million right only only four and a half percent or so come to North America right but by eighteen sixty there's four million slaves in North America, and there's two million in Brazil which got the most slaves and less than a million in Cuba that they they got far more slaves, but their slaves died they worked to and, death. They worked to death. It was large-scale manumissions in that society that didn't happen in the United States and things like that for a lot of reasons. But yes, mostly, they don't die. They don't die.
0: Now, I want to jump to the 13th Amendment and all this kitchen sink stuff is setting things up. No one could have foreseen... I mean, war is crazy. I mean, no one knows what's going to happen. The fog of war goes... No one could have anticipated And yet, all these things were happening... That made it possible, just barely. And yet, you know, chance favors the pre- the prepared mind. It's yes. having done all these things made yes. it possible.
1: Yes, no one could have imagined it. But on the other hand, the fact that the the Republicans come into office committed to the ultimate extinction of slavery meant that the as the various contingencies of war occur, their responses to them reflect their anti-slavery convictions. War, as you pointed out, the, the normal thing to happen in war is mass enslavement. Mm. And there is evidence of that normal process during the Civil War. That is, when the Confederates invade Pennsylvania uh, in the Gettysburg Campaign, they go through the town of Gettysburg and the surrounding countryside, round up free blacks, and send them to the South as slaves that's normal. That's the normal. Uh, That's what wars do. But it's not what happened mostly during the Civil War. In the Civil War, something peculiar happened. The, The Union armies went into the South and freed people instead of... And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they're told to do that. Because the Northerners come into this war with the sense that slavery is the cause of the war. They're angry at the slaveholders for causing this war. And they're inclined to do what They're told that, right, the slaves come into your lines, you don't send them back, right? Mm -hmm. And that creates the conditions for the gradual radicalization of anti-slavery politics over the course of the war. You start by not sending them back. Then you say if they come within Union lines on their own uh, they'll be emancipated, and not only will they not be sent back, they're freed. And then you say it's a crime for anyone in the Union Army to actually, in any way, participate in the return of fugitives to their owners. Then you pass all those laws. You ban slavery and abolish slavery in Washington, D.C. You ban slavery from the territories. You get get the treaty suppressing the Atlantic slave trade finally and fully and things like that. You do all the things that the Anti-Slavery Project did. But then you got a war, and the war says, the war powers say, yeah, we can't interfere with slavery in peacetime. But during a war, we're allowed to emancipate. You know, the British did it during the American Revolution, and we accepted that in the treaties that ended the American Revolution. We accepted it again in the Jay Treaty. We accepted it again when the British did it again during the War of 1812. We accept that in wartime, the federal government can emancipate slaves in an effort to win the war or suppress a rebellion. So they come into the war with that assumption. They don't like slavery. They think the slaveholders caused the war. And every step of the way, every time there is a setback, or they win, or they lose, or whatever it's going on on the battlefield, their their response is consistently anti-slavery, and it gets more and more radical. You know, you get eventually. Lincoln will issue an Emancipation Proclamation declaring the emancipation of everybody in a state that's in an area that's in rebellion. And Then the Union Army, which had previously been told, oh, you don't go onto to plantations and entice slaves away. You just free slaves who come within your lines voluntarily. But after the Emancipation Proclamation, we're going to change it around. We're going to. Ban the, you know, lift the ban on enticement. and organize a cadre of Union soldiers to actually go on the plantations and entice the slaves to come, especially the young men, to come and join the Union Army.
0: And first yes. there was whites, and then was blacks to to entice.
1: Yes, and you get in eighteen sixty three the beginnings after of the the formation of the United States Colored Troops, and the, and by eighteen sixty four they're. They're 20% of the Union army and they can't do without them and that. And every step of the way, the Northerners are looking at this and policymakers are saying, you know, well, we thought that there would be an eruption of of Unionist sentiment when we got into the South among the whites, but it didn't happen. Instead, what we discovered was was that the only loyal people we have, we meet in the South are the slaves. They're the ones who come to our lines. They're the ones who feed us information about where the Confederates are, where they're hiding their supplies and things like that. They're giving us crucial information to the generals and stuff like that they're the only reliably loyal people and there's an ancient you know an ancient legal principle that says loyalty loyalty the federal the state responds to loyalty by a, an offer of protection loyalty and protection by the government right and and every step of the way they're they're watching this happen they're watching the slaves want to join the Union Army they wanted that you know they watch the, what they do on the battlefield and they push a little further and after a and and northern public opinion is shifting with this. You know, they they don't go into the war thinking this is a war to abolish slavery. They gradually come to the conclusion that the war, the thing that caused the war has to be destroyed in order to fully suppress this rebellion. They don't know quite how to do it yet. They have a year of the Emancipation Proclamation. It's looking increasingly like the war is going to end without the thing that caused the war being destroyed and at the end of 1863 early 1864 like i said a year after the emancipation proclamation you start hearing let's have a 13th amendment let's have a 13th amendment you yeah. know and the prog- the process by which that is supposed to happen is individual states have to abolish slavery and and ratify a, 14, a 13th Amendment.
0: Because we need three quarters. You need, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not planning on that. They're, all
1: the way through, they're planning on what they've always planned on, right? Getting the states to abolish slavery. But now they've got a war, and now that Lincoln can be saying to those states, you know, you better abolish slavery on your own, because it's going to be destroyed by the friction and abrasion of war, he calls it, right? So... He, he starts by pressuring those border states that they always thought, that the elders always thought would be the first to go, and it turns out they're not the first to go. They're like the last to go, right? But after the Emancipation Proclamation, he starts saying to the slave states, you know, you should abolish slavery, you know? And so Arkansas abolishes slavery, the first state since New Jersey to abolish slavery, the first slave state to since New Jersey to abolish slavery. And then over the course of 1864, it's Arkansas The rump state of Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Louisiana, they all abolish slavery, and and Missouri.
0: It's under heavy pressure. It's not just just, he's like, you know, you should do this. There's
1: internal pressure. There's a social revolution going on within these states. The anti-slavery forces are radicalized by the war as well. And there's pressure from Congress. And there's pressure from the Union armies and stuff like that. And there's enormous pressure. And these states abolish slavery. Some of them are kind of bogus abolitions because they don't – you know, it's – Two counties in northern Virginia are the Virginia legislature and seven parishes in southern Louisiana and things like that. But nevertheless, they start counting, you know, and you go into the war with 18 free states and 15 slave states, and that's not three quarters. You're never going to get an abolition amendment. By late 1865, by early 1865, you know, they've admitted three new free states. Right? They've admitted West Virginia, they've admitted Nevada, and they've admitted, what's the other one? I can't remember that the other one was the, the Kansas. Right? So they've admitted three new states. That's 18. That's that's 21. But that's 21 to 15. 21 to 15 isn't going to do it. You've got to flip the slave states. And they do. They flip these slave states. And in January of 1865, when Congress is debating, you know, the House of Representatives still hasn't Voted to send the Thirteenth Amendment to Congress. When it finally does that, at the end of January eighteen sixty-five, there are twenty-seven free states and and uh, uh, nine slave states. That's three-quarters. That's what you, and they send it to the states for ratification. And For the most part, the states have, that just abolished slavery ratify the Thirteenth.
0: And the language of the 13th, of the Thirteenth Amendment, it's just it's the same as. Previous things. Yes, like-
1: they're they're just taking it from the, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which touches their abolition amendment to the founders. Right, the the founders in the Continental Congress passed the first anti-slavery legislation that says slavery shall be banned in the Northwest. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the Northwest Territories, except as punishment for crime whereof the person is a. Has been duly convicted, right? And that they repass that in the very first Congress under the new Constitution. The states that begin abolishing slavery in the Northwest Territories use that language, anti slavery, all in. It's in the Wilmot Proviso of 18, you know, in the 1840s to ban slavery from the territories acquired from Mexico and things like that. So it, that Northwest ordinance becomes the link that anti slavery people use to say, we're not doing something the founders didn't want us to do, right? It's, the language has become, in some sense, boilerplate, right? But when they're confronted by Democrats in Northern Democrats in the Congress saying this is an unconstitutional constitutional amendment, this is a violation of everything the country stands for, they can say, but Congress passed this in 1787 and it repassed it in 1789 and every state has passed this ever since and it's been it is part of the american tradition we are not doing something out of the ordinary here
0: so all these things like everything counts everything everyone did all the time
1: and they just made it yeah they just made it this is the best thing about the steven spielberg's movie lincoln and this is i credit this to tony kushner you know, who, who wrote the screenplay right but he got that that Crucial debate in the House of Representatives in January was going to decide the fate of this. If they could get enough of those Democrats who had lost in the previous November's election to vote, to switch their votes, and things like that, and they didn't know until the end whether it would work. Probably would have worked anyway because the new Congress would have come in with enough votes anyway, but still, they had to get it through. The North had won the war. They were going to win the war, but it's not clear that... Well, if
0: the war had ended before the new Congress came in, they might have said, oh, we got peace.
1: Well, that was part of the rush to get it through before there was anything like a, a surrender by the, by the Confederates because that might have stopped. Because, again, always the justification right until the end uh, for abolition is to suppress the rebellion, right? Now... That's the legal justification. That's the formal political rationale for it. But everybody knew by then that it had nothing to do with that. Really, it's just we want to abolish slavery and we're going to justify it by saying we have to do this to suppress the rebellion. Right from the start, the Democrats were saying this, right? In the earliest months of the war, when the Republicans started attacking slavery and justifying it as a military necessity, the, the answer from the Northern Democrats was, no, it isn't. You're just, you're just saying that. You're just saying, and to some extent, they were. Well, they're ca- I mean, they were just saying it,
0: and they're saying Lincoln is acting tyrannically. Although that there's justification for what he's doing too. I mean, it could go. There's well, some they're saying
1: there is no. Well, some people are saying there is no legal justification for it. That that he's made up the legal justification as well. I mean, there are there are historians who still say that. But but uh, the real point is that uh, some some critics of Lincoln and the Republicans dismissed the significance of emancipation on the grounds that they only did it out of military necessity, but it's not entirely clear. The only people who believed in the military necessity of emancipation were people who hated slavery. The people who didn't hate slavery, like the Northern Democrats, said the whole idea was bogus. There was no such thing as, there was no military necessity in this case, even if it is legal. It's, it's, it's a bogus argument. You're just using it to justify a policy an anti-slavery policy you intended to pursue from the start.
0: It's telling me that if for someone who believes in something that that something should be illegal, I don't know how to put this. If someone feels, I mean, they had to, they had to do everything they could, and they had to. And right, it's, I think it was legal. I mean, I don't they think. Had to I, don't think, I think the
1: argument is wrong. I think factually, historically, it is incorrect to say that that there is no military justification. For emancipation, there is, there has at least the precedents were there, you yeah. know, and it's it's an inference they drew from the laws of war. We talked about this earlier, you know, a little bit. I didn't make the point I could have made. the The laws of war, the modern laws of war, are a subset of the law of nations, right? And the law of nations originally is grounded in natural law, and it has always been accepted that slavery is contrary to natural law. But it doesn't mean you can't have slavery. It just means it's accepted that, that it's a contrary to natural law. So in the 18th century, in the 19th century, theorists of the law of war, or at least politicians justifying military emancipation in war, drew an inference from the laws of war, grounded in the laws of nations, grounded in the law of nature that's incompatible with slavery. Right? So they're finding justifications in the laws of war that. People who wrote the famous tracts on the laws of war didn't always find there's ways of getting to emancipation within the laws of war, but you have to be creative.
0: Well, because I'm the inspiration to me is that I believe there's justification for ending something that deprives others of life, liberty, and property, which is pollution, and right. Actually, let me let's close on this. If it's... so, so. so you make it.
1: Uh, did we talk about this the last time? How do you make the the the, the goal? When I was talking earlier about the uh, the thing about that makes the gag rule debate so significant is that it it was it goes on for years, and it is the series of issues that ramify out from it that cause northerners that impress northerners with the realization that this is not just about the humanitarian concern for the condition of oppressed black people in the South. It's about the nation and it's about us that we have a stake in this, right? So there's a way in which I've thought about how, how do you make it concrete? How do you make an issue like pollution concrete? Like, you know, you say, you know, to people in Florida, you really think you're going to get, you can't get homeowners insurance anymore, right? If you keep building homes, you know in the path of hurricanes or people in the southwest you know what are you going to do when lake mead runs dry you know it's it's directly affects you this is not this is not some abstract problem of climate change that scientific models predict or or say is happening and stuff like that this is a, watch it happening to you where you are you know and there's a whole lot of different ways in which that's happening
0: now that's to, and and it's anti-constitutional. It's against the... It,
1: if you can make an argument that yeah. it deprives people of, uh, of the fundamental rights that they have. That's what it... Their fundamental right to the pursuit of happiness.
0: And life and liberty. And, and uh, yeah, so I feel like this is... I feel like I'm in 1820.
1: Right. And you have to figure out how to make this argument. And then you have to figure out how to develop a movement that will provoke the politicians into, you know make taking up this argument and then you have to organize it and make it politically viable you know and you have to develop a constitutional theory that justifies the political project and then you just have to push and push yeah. and push
0: and hopefully say look we don't need another civil war no and like there's there's reasons to do this presumably you make peacefully.
1: you make the uh climate deniers or something you know become more and more outrageous and expose them the way the the abolitionists and not
0: just climate all of climate fires or the yeah and then pull the moderates
1: you know make the moderates realize that this isn't you know you can't running.
0: have a little bit of violation of the constitution over there and contain that it, it, there's no way to contain it
1: but you have to make that argument you have to make that argument about the the, the constitutional basis of an of a, of a sustainable environmental project.
0: Well, it's been done before, right? and you wrote about it. Right. Well, that's why I write
1: about it. I have a student who is interested in the origins of the the women's suffrage amendment, and she's she wants to work with me because because she wants to do for that what I did for the 13th Amendment. She went, how did they get this done? How did you get from a situation in, you know, right after the Civil War when women's rights activists were saying, you know, give us the right to vote too, and all the anti-slavery people were saying, we can't right now, we just can't right now, right? And, you know, it just goes nowhere to 50, 60, 70 years later, three-quarters of the states do what no state would have done despite the existence of people saying we need to do this. So what did it take? I don't know the answer to that. That's her project, Mm -hmm. but, but it's the same. It's the same project. It's the same, at least analytically, historically, how do you get this done? How do you get
0: this done? Yeah. So she's still looking at history. I'm still, I'm looking at it. Projection. Right. 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 So let's wrap with this, wrap up with this. If, um, if it's okay, you get a, I, I think I emailed you first and I must've mentioned, um, Anisha. Yeah. And so if some guy enters your world and it's like, he, he doesn't know much about uh, the 13th amendment. He doesn't know too much about slavery. He doesn't know too much about that part of American history. Right. Uh, but he's, he's talking about using that 13th amendment as a way of, of, um, seeing that as a potential new king solution for another, for a big problem of today. Right. How does that,
1: is it Tall order.
0: <laughs> how does it feel for you? Like, uh, is it interesting? Like your work applied in a way, did you ever envision it that way?
1: No. I, I envisioned, it, envisioned it on a much smaller scale of what does it take? You have to build coalitions, you have to... Exist. Uh, and it's project, specifically project-oriented, the way the anti-slavery project was project-oriented. Do this, do this, do this, do this. So how do you get universal health care? How do you get, you know, a unionized service sector? How do you get uh, an increase in the minimum wage? How do you build the infrastructure? How do you get housing? You know, how do you make housing a right? How do you make health care a Right. Things like that. What, it it, just, and what kind of coalitions do you build to get those specific things done? So you break it. For me, it's about breaking it down to the issues that have popular appeal that you think can appeal and building the coalition to get that stuff done. And with, you know, whatever my ultimate goal might be about transcending capitalism or something like that. That's way too abstract. In the meantime, it's a... <laughs> was that a do you know this book by Thomas Piketty that came out about Capital. 10 years or Capital in the yeah. 21st century? So when that came out, it was a big deal, and we had a a, a big... Th- Thing at the graduate center here, monthly meetings over the course of a year to discuss the book. Different people would come in. And, and one of my colleagues, a Marxist, came in and gave one of the talks and was saying, you know, oh, Piketty has this pie in the sky idea about uh, a global wealth tax. We're not gonna, you know, we're never gonna get a global wealth tax. What we really need is the overthrow of capitalism. <laughs> The guy behind me, sitting behind me, says, in the meantime, I'll take Denmark, right? So that's the way I am, you know, okay, I'm a socialist. In the meantime, I'll take universal health insurance, you know, health care, and, you know, housing as a right, those kinds of things, you know, give me those particular things. And then I'll worry about later on about the overthrow of wage labor. (laughs) So, you know, that's what I get from what I do. The 13th Amendment clinched it at a critical moment, but it wasn't the project all along. You know, it, it came along. So I don't know where it would end if we got my project, you know, and part of the project has to, would have to be, you know, all of these things have to be done in the context of the degradation of the environment, you know, and the sustainable use of our of our resources. So it would be part of the project. Just as, you know, <sighs> uh, there's, there's lots of things that would be part of the project, uh, allianced with the project. You know, the project has to be anti racist, it has to be feminist, it has to be environmentalist, and things like that. It has to be all those things. But But my project is this. Your project is slightly different. It's not incompatible with my project, but it's you know, in any case, that's how I've been thinking about what I do as a historian since 20 more years.
0: And so you have your, I mean, is it, did you anticipate someone saying what you've been doing is apply? Did you anticipate it could be applicable in the way that I hope to apply it?
1: Not that specific way. No, I never imagined such a thing as a as an amendment to the Constitution banning pollution. It never occurred to me that that would be the way to go about it. That since, especially in my formulation of it, that there were certainly people like you, let's say Henry Stanton, you know, pioneering evolution, who is imagining that in the late 1830s, you know. But it's never part of the project because it's incompatible. It's not incompatible. It's just inconceivable given the, al- the the arrangement of the states and the number of states it would take to do that. But he was imagining something far off. And in the meantime, he'd take Denmark. He'll, t- he'll take all these other things. So
0: I'm like Stanton in 1837 or 1830. Yeah, right. And the... Oh, I was going to say something. Um, Stanton pollution. Oh, yeah, I... I If you go to my webpage and you go to the bio, it says my mission. So my mission is to, is to help change American and global culture to embrace sustain, to see sustainability as something that would improve their lives, not deprivation and sacrifice. Right. And when I had my first thought of a constitutional amendment, my first thought was, well, that's, don't even waste brain power on that. But it kept sticking with me. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to get across the finish line, which is what makes. Well, the finish line is.
1: This line is the finish line.
0: Yeah. So I, some things that make more sense the more I think about it is how to enforce it because, because you can't it? hide.
1: We just break down what oh, it is okay, into so a how to set define... of policies that you want that will get you to what you want. Right.
0: And well, what I'm realizing is was I going to change my mission statement to pass an amendment banning pollution? And then I realized I don't really know it well enough yet. And something that is as I refine it more and more, it's more something like to to help lead this country to where there's overwhelming support for such a thing. Yes. And I don't want something I, – I, w- I don't want to go around democracy. I don't want to – uh, do stuff, like, I, I, don't want to sacrifice democracy to get this. Even if someone's like, well, if you could snap your fingers, no, I would not do it. No, that's Because right. then we'd no, undo it. It
1: won't work. That's correct.
0: And I also know that we could have overwhelming support for it. But, um, I think it was Eric Williams who was saying how much institutions hold on to well past their, what they was any, doing any good for anyone for. They will hold on like crazy. Yes. And so I know that there's lots of money to be made from burning fossil fuels and that will stick around for a long time. But there can there are interests. Yeah. So I want to create a world where
1: So culturally or politically, however you want to frame it, you know, the the problem for the anti slavery movement, for the abolitionist movement, wasn't wasn't to get people to think get northerners to think that slavery was immoral, just as your problem isn't to get people to think that the environment needs to be protected. Most people would agree with that. The problem for the anti-slavery movement was to get people to think that that—that it was a priority to get slavery. And how do you get them to think about that, I think in those terms, that it's, a, it's not simply a good, it's something that has to be done?
0: Yeah, my, one of the main purposes of this podcast, and really the, the video series that I want to create, is to lead people from feeling like, Someone should act on this soon. To I must act on this now, for my reasons. But
1: you, you have to. But you have to give them things specific, doable things to act on. You can't say, "Let's have a thirteenth an amendment." Of, I don't think saying you the goal is an amendment banning pollution It has to be do this, do this, do this, do this. And maybe, maybe by the time they do all these things, you won't need an amendment.
0: Well, the people that I, I with other guests, I haven't done it with you, but I think I described after we recorded last time with the Spodek method of leading people to share what the environment means to them, right? In a way, and to and to dwell on it with them, so outcomes something meaningful for them, something intrinsic, mm-hmm. and then I invite them to act on their values. So I don't tell them what to do; I lead them to where they come up with something, and because they've come up with it for their intrinsic reasons. Right, many of them come back and say, I'm really glad I did that. I want to do more.
1: Right.
0: It might be, I can't pick what they do because I don't know what will resonate with each person.
1: Right. But I'm more oriented towards, you know, those, those, you have to be careful that you don't make, the solutions can't be individualistic in the sense that, yes, every individual is going to have to come along. But it's, This is the thing the abolitionists were doing in the 1830s. Get it back into politics. Make it a political issue because ultimately, ultimately slavery isn't going to be abolished because you've persuaded the slaveholders that slavery is wrong and they should give it up. Ultimately, the state is going to do this. And you need policies. It's, yes, you do have to persuade individuals that this is a priority and this needs to be done, but you have to give them something to do besides just a personal conversion. And there are things. There's lots of things. We have lots of examples. We have lots of precedents. The Clean Water Act did it. When I was a kid, the Hudson River was disgusting. It was filthy. It's not anymore. It's not. Because we passed a law and made it, cleaned it up. And it's not just, you know, the air is cleaner than it used to be because they banned lead and things like that, you know. There are things, there are, there are lots of precedents for doing it, and lots of other things. And like I said, the one I mentioned, I don't remember if it was before when I'm in the air, but just why it took so long for the government to ban plastic bags is beyond me. But you've lived here long enough to know that plastic bags used to fly all over the streets, empty plastic they bags. They still
0: do, because there are little exceptions here. And there.
1: Yeah, there are little exceptions, but not like it used to be, not like it used to be.
0: Although we didn't get, the popular support wasn't there. So people go around it with all these. Now they use, you can use bigger bags, and people using them, treating them like they're disposable. So that's why. I, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah glad it, still, I'm glad it passed, yeah, yeah. and yeah, we right. got to learn from it too. Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, that's standard. That's the thing. Yeah, you get this, and then you see. Well, this worked, but we need to do something else now.
0: Yeah, all on the political side and on the pub- and the private citizen side. And
1: yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Now I'm I'm dying to keep going. We're over an hour. And all right. I got to go home. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, I hope to keep this conversation going. And It's great. I have but, to say, you know,
1: not many of my fellow historians are as careful readers as yes, you are. Because you, you got what I was saying in Freedom National in a way that not many readers do, sorry.
0: As a professor myself, I used to teach lecture style. And a friend of mine started a school that was a high school in Philadelphia from the ground up, it's called Science Leadership Academy, from the ground up, project-based learning. And I learned from him and his community. And actually, (laughs) yesterday, I went to, okay, I've been comparing uh, pollution to slavery. And I've realized there's a lot of colonialism and imperialism. And I went to the library just to look up a bit of like the difference between colonialism and imperialism and, and learn a bit more about them. Oh, man, I was going to town on realizing how much – how relevant this stuff is to what I'm talking about. And slavery is just a piece of it. Mm-hmm. It's a big piece of it. Big piece of it. But people go to a lot of places some, – some places living beyond their means. And they say, oh, there's stuff over there. Let's get that stuff. Now they start taking from some other place. And it's almost impossible for them to stop going for the labor of those people too. And
1: – Listen, It's tricky. Anti-slavery, after the, after the American Civil War, after slavery has been finally abolished in Cuba and Brazil, in the aftermath of the American Civil War, imperialists, br- the Brits would like justify imperial ventures in Africa on the grounds that they're anti-slavery. They would use their anti-slavery principles to justify invading and taking over colonies in Africa because they had slavery. So it's, it's, you know, <laughs> imperialism, is involved in the whole modern history of slavery and anti-slavery.
0: And we are, I think there's a lot of people out there in this country who are vehemently opposed to imperialism and colonialism and might not realize you don't get a cell phone without taking materials from some other place. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to describe our situation today. Right. Where we are, we're like, we want more stuff. We want some comfort and convenience. And it needs more than we have, in, like, locally. That's right. And them over there, let's get it. And it, it strikes me that, you know, Exxon does not buy its own products. That's correct. And who's buying it? The people who are, the rich people in the rich countries are driving the system.
1: Well, yes, but even, yes, yes. It's, it's, you're never going to get... I mean, we're not going to go back to the stone age. You live in an apartment building somewhere that concrete came from. Mm-hmm. Your solar panels came from somewhere. Your batteries came from somewhere. Even to live off the grid the way you're talking about requires a degree of global interconnectedness and, and modernization, industrial capacity that may not be here. You know, sometimes there are, there are, uh, Degrowthers who sometimes put on the website, you know, you want to live like this in this nice tree-lined, you know, community that has a store nearby and everything you need and you don't need a car and you can do everything on your bicycle and stuff like that. Or you want to live like this in smokestacks and polluted and stuff like that. As though you can have the one without the other.
0: Although I do believe that.
1: You know, you know, you got to find ways of cutting that down, you know, because that is not yet independent of that.
0: So for everyone listening to right now who's thinking stuff like that, that's, I thought that too. And it's, that's very important stuff. The most effective way to handle that is to do what you can. Oh, Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> who, he quoted someone else. Do what you can with what you've got where you are. Exactly. And right. I do depend. Think globally, act locally. I depend on all these things and uh, much less than before. Right. And I'm learning There's this huge other branch, a whole other bunch of of podcast guests that I've had, of people who've lived among the Hadza, the San, the Kogi, the Tsumane, the Matses. And I'm far from sustainable. I'm far from sustainable. Right. But getting closer and realizing they're not living in the Stone Age, and we don't have to live like them to live sustainably. Right. And it's still beyond my horizon, but getting closer all the time. And the path is a joyful path. It is not yes, but
1: but again, again, I would just say, it's something that you need to formulate policies that will make it that will incentivize people to live this way, right? You you said it before, more farmers' markets, right? yeah, you know, things like that, more bike paths, more, <laughs> you know, all sorts of, and they and and they're things the government can do. You don't the, the bike paths don't force people to ride bicycles. Mm-hmm. They make it easier to ride bicycles, you know, those kinds of things that the the government has a responsibility and the ability to do to to alter the incentives that we confront when we do these things.
0: Jim Oakes, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Good to talk to you.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com/donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com/donate.